Hey everybody, this is Tommy Miller. I'm the senior pastor at Legacy Church. We're really excited that you decided to join our podcast this morning. Our intention is to give you the information and the resources that you need to bring heaven to earth by walking in the fullness of your identity and your destiny. Enjoy the sermon, enjoy your day, be blessed, and do what Jesus did. of really creative titles, but then I realized that we have to be appropriate. So I might tell you in the middle what I was going to call this one, because I think I actually titled this, this title before, but now we've got a lot more people that watch us, and you kind of have to appear like you're professional. So the title of today's message is 70 times 7, not the Christian F word, which is Forgiveness. It's what nobody likes to hear about. (sighs) I don't know if I'm judged or if you guys are just not awake yet. Okay. All right. Before I get started, um, I I want to tell you something. October is Pastors Appreciation Month, right? Which should not be the reason that we appreciate pastors, but it's a good reminder. Um, But I wanted to to talk to you about somebody... um, Specifically, and I wanted to be vulnerable, transparent, and just kind of share their life with you a little bit. Um, I, I used to be a competitive athlete, and one of the things that, that we revered in athletics was we, we realized that anybody can be really good for a short time, right? But it takes somebody special to have, have quality and longevity to them, right? So oftentimes there, there was these guys that would come up through the bodybuilding ranks, and they would like... They would start in 1997, they would be pro by 1999, then they'd have a colostomy bag by 2000. You know, like, we, you knew that wasn't quality athletics, that was, that was usually abuse and bad decisions. But when somebody knows how to do exceptional things for a really long time, they deserve recognized. And, um, and we, have, we have a pastor that I'm going to recognize this morning that has done literally everything in the church for 10 years. And I'm not going to say any, I'm, like I'm, I'm being intentional on, on not underselling this, but I also don't want to overemphasize anything. But I want to tell you that of all of the men in my life, none of them have inspired me as often for, or for as long than Aaron Jones. Okay. When, when, I have, when I have somebody in my life like this, what I try to do, especially during moments like this, is try to articulate why. You know what I mean? Like, there's some people that just have a profound impact, and I feel like one of my responsibilities is I try to articulate why they've had a profound impact. And here's what I've seen over 10 years. He has consistently made the right choice. I've watched Pastor Aaron come to a dozen or more crossroads in his life. And every time he's faced with a decision to abandon, give up, get offended, go away, whatever it is, he always chooses the kingdom. And everybody has that opportunity. And like, I re- like he's cleaned up the trash before. He's, he's led the youth group before. He's done tech. He's taught leaders. He's preached conferences. We've, we've sent him to events, city events, to, to preach on our behalf. He's literally done everything from janitorial to apostolic. And, and never in any of those moments was it about his preference. For the last 10 years, his life has been about what the kingdom needs. And at no time when, when the, the opportunity presented itself, did he say, no, that's not what I want to do? He has laid down his life at every turn to make sure that the people of Legacy Church are taken care of in whatever ever way that they need taken care of, whether they need amazing lighting, whether they need a, a, sound, a sound guy trained, whether they need... He, he leads three of the four leaders' meetings. Like, 
the most dedicated, the most mature people. He teaches them three of four weeks every week at our nine o'clock leaders meeting. He's done everything. He's done it with this exceptional support of his wife, Janelle, who also deserves a round of applause. And what I don't get to do is tell you what he says during the conversations that he and I have when we're at the coffee shop. When, when I tell him that um, we're taking a team to Dallas and he says, have fun, I will guarantee that these people in this place are taken care of while you're gone. And that doesn't mean that he gets out of getting to go somewhere with us somewhere sometime soon because everybody needs to get to meet and experience these guys. But I, I don't have words. I've had men in and out of my life for, for seasons. I've never had a spiritual brother in my life as consistently as I've had Aaron. So thank you. You deserve more honor than I could ever articulate. But I am 100% positive as a matter of fact, I'll say things that are a little pompous that he, he couldn't say himself. He could step behind any pulpit in this country and preach the paint off the walls and give their leaders something to talk about. Not only that, he could strategically align and lead their teams so that they had an effective local ministry. He is, he is first class senior leader material and he does whatever is needed. And I wanted to honor you lovely people today for everything that you've done. And I fall short, but I tried my best, and I just wanted to let you know that we love you, and we could never in a million years do this without you. Thank you. All right, you ready for 70 times seven? Which is our live stream appropriate title for today's message. Okay, we've talked about forgiveness often. I'm going to talk about forgiveness differently today because we're in the series entitled Transfigured, right? And transfiguration is the process that Jesus went through when he literally expressed divinity in his human body with eyewitnesses, right? People watched his face change, people watched his clothes change, and then you see evidence in the New Testament of God's desire to give life to your mortal body as well. Right? The language that we use here is that you have three expressions of your human identity. Those expressions are a spiritual expression, which is who God says you are. Right? That's unchanging. You were in him before the foundation of the world. The two have become one. If it's true of him, it's true of you. Right? Now, there's a component of your humanity that we refer to as the second heaven component or the soul component, and that is your human soul. Your human soul is your mind, your will, and emotions, the things you think, the things you feel, and the things that you do. That identity expresses itself as who you believe you are, right? Your first heaven physical visible identity is your human body, and that is what creation experiences when it encounters you. You understand? God's intention is for all three of those things to be exactly the same. Who he says you are, who you believe you are, and what creation experiences when it encounters you to be the same thing. That is transfiguration. Romans chapter 12 puts it in this context. Don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be metamorphuo by the renewing of your mind, a component of your soul. Metamorphuo was not translated as transformed. It was translated as transfigured, okay? It's the same word that describes what happened to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. You following me so far? Okay, so today we're going to hit head on the number one thing that will steal your identity from you. And I'll explain why, I'll explain how you get through it, and I'll explain the heavenly mechanics of unforgiveness and forgiveness, okay? 
There's, there's actually apostolic understanding to this. It's not just an emotional agreement to let somebody go for something that they did wrong. There's actually an ecosystem that goes along with forgiveness and unforgiveness that either keeps you bound or sets you free. Here's my definition of unforgiveness. You ready? When sin towards you produces sin in you. When sin towards you produces sin in you. Okay? Now, we talked last week about having a high priest that was tempted in every way that you and I are. Yet, right? What was the exception? He was without sin. That means that being called a drunkard, being called a demon-possessed man, a heretic, a wine-bibber, being confronted for claiming that he was the son of God, being called a liar, being called unauthorized, being tried and found innocent yet still dying a guilty man's death, none of those sins toward him produced sin in him. Do you understand what I'm saying? So do you believe that creation can experience Christ in you if somebody else is determining what comes out of you? impossible, right? Let's talk about sin for a moment. I'll give you a Greek lesson on the word sin. We talk about this often because it's pivotal that you understand what this is. Sin in the Old Testament was a Greek word that meant to transgress the line. It literally means you broke the rule. And oftentimes our understanding of sin come from the Old Testament, even though New Testament sin has nothing to do with behaviors. It has to do with identity. Okay? It's not something you did, it's something that you believe about yourself. The Greek word, the compound Greek word that we, that we translate to the English word sin is hemartia. That word means to miss the mark. But if, if you study just a little bit further, you'll find that hemartia is a Greek compound word that's made of two Greek words, ha and miros, or morphe, which means distorted form. Okay? So unforgiveness is when somebody who doesn't know who they are says something about you that isn't in alignment with what God says about you and you believe them over him. What they did to you produces something else in you. So now what creation experiences when it encounters you is not divine. It's whatever the other person did or said. Right? There's language in the Transfigured book about you, you made me, right? The simplicity of this statement is nothing can make you that didn't make you. Ready? You made me angry. You made me depressed. You made me upset. You made me vengeful. The rule, if you truly want good governance in your life, is just establish this from the get-go. Nothing can make you that didn't make you. Okay? That's how you establish good governance and internal identity. The way that offense comes, right? If we understand how things operate on a natural level, then what you encountered in your offender, if you understand internal governance, is simply somebody that doesn't know who they are. Right? It was a distortion towards you that desires to produce a distortion in you. That's why Jesus and Stephen could both comfortably ask for the forgiveness of their murderers. Because there is a spiritual truth regarding their murderers that their murderers didn't believe. So that when Jesus encountered them, they encountered what they believed about themselves. So Father, forgive them. They know not what they do is as important as realizing that you should ask their forgiveness because Father, forgive them. They don't know who they are, right? And if your identity isn't found in good governance, in spirit, then they will be able to redefine you. And if they redefine you, creation experiences something other than him when it encounters you. You understand why forgiveness is such a big deal? Right? It's not just to set you free, which is wildly important. Of all of the people that Shanda and I counsel, people with bitterness are the most bound. Right? People that are bitter are the most bound. It affects everything they say. It affects every relationship they have. It reflects every thought in their head. Everything that they see is in light of their last offense. 
People come into the church openly and tell you, we want to attend here, but we don't want to trust anybody because we were hurt at our last spot. How successful do you think they're going to be in the local assembly? Not at all, right? Many of you are struggling, have been struggling in your marriages for 20 or 30 or 40 years. Your current spouses are paying for something your boyfriend or girlfriend did to you in high school. Sin towards you produced sin in you. You brought a, a fallen identity into your relationship and you wonder why it's dysfunctional. Make sense? There's mechanics to this. There's mechanics on how to settle offense. As a matter of fact, let's get this out of the way. If you want the local church to fail, how many of you want the local church to fail? Raise your hand. Good, okay? Then you need to pay close attention to the things that I'm about to expound on. Offense kills the local church, right? Jesus said, if you say to your brother, you fool, you're committing murder. If you're not willing to walk with someone through offense and through trials, listen, the Bible does, it's, it's beautiful. I love the way that the kingdom operates because the kingdom doesn't afford you the opportunity to stay offended. It doesn't. The responsibility of reconciliation is on the offended, not the offender. The person that did something wrong to you is not responsible to make it right. If you remember, or if you're offended, you go to them. The person that has been offended is the one now in control of the reconciliation of the relationship. Good stuff? Okay. Now, I'm going to teach mechanically, but we're going to have some ministry time because unforgiveness is difficult. It is. And sometimes it takes prayer and agreement and think to let go of some of the things. But here's the deal. If you see this objectively, I'm going to say all the hurtful things at the beginning, and then you can like me at the end. Okay? If you look at this objectively, and you sit back, which is human beings are the only thing that God, God made that have the ability to evaluate their own thought processes. You'll realize that unforgiveness is the stupidest thing that you could ever choose. Yep. It costs you your identity. If you don't know who you are, you can't know what you can do. So it costs you your destiny. It costs you your freedom. It costs you your manifestation. Right? If somebody has inserted distortion into your own soul, then the spirit can't give life to your mortal body because you've come into agreement with something that's not God. Objectively, you are the one that will pay the price for unforgiveness, not your offender. Your offender sleeps well, right? Usually the distortion in their identity is so distorted that they don't even realize they did anything wrong to you, but you hold on to it for years. Yep. Sin towards you produces distortion in you. That's unforgiveness. Good? Hmm. All right. So the Bible gives you a time limit. Mechanically, it gives you a time limit on how long you are allowed to be offended. Does anybody know how long it is? Until the sun goes down. If you want to submit to the word of God then you are not permitted. Now, the word wrath, this is, this is important too. The word wrath in the New Testament is one of those words that kind of takes on the attribute of the emotion. Wrath can mean that you want to punish somebody, but wrath by itself means passion. Like it's, it's the intensity of the emotion that you have. So when it says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath, and it's, and it's in the context of unforgiveness, then the intense emotion that you're feeling towards your offender, you're not permitted to keep it longer than you're awake. Good? How many of you broke the rules already? <laughs> yeah. Okay, this is important. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Or, here you go, right? It says you'll actually give a place for the devil. The word place was the Greek word topos. It literally means that you can look at a map and say, there he is. And he inhabits. He's an opportunist. He inhabits your unforgiveness. God inhabits your praise. The devil inhabits your unforgiveness. 
<laughs> you all right? Okay, let's talk through this. Um, I'm, I'm a pretty laid-back guy, right? I, since I've been saved, I've, I've only threatened two people. They were both physicians. I don't know. Yeah. I don't. I, I, did I threaten one to throw him out his window? My wife had to push me out of the office and apologize. And it was her doctor, not mine. I'm a laid back guy. I don't get offended, right? I, I got a revelation of the third heaven reality early. And when my wife asks me why I'm so laid back, my answer is kind of surprising. I usually say it's because I'm selfish. Think about this. It's not because I'm spiritual. It's not because I'm Christ-like. It's because I have an identity and a destiny that God intends for me to live out, and I can't do it if other people are telling me who I am all the time. It's impossible. We, we have a culture, we preach a message that isn't always uh, well-liked or well-accepted by, by Western evangelicals, so that's fine. But if we tried to conform to accusers, we would never authentically be who Christ called us to be, right? You'd simply be trying to appease the opinions of people. If you guys ever get a chance, I recommend this to all of my students. I haven't shared it across the pulpit yet. But there is a, uh, an essay called Self-Reliance by Ralph Waldo Emerson. I read it at least three times a year. It's short. You can listen to it on YouTube. Some of the best quotes about your authentic self will be found in that passage. Okay, he's a, he's a transcendental poet. He's uh, spiritual but secular. But one of the statements in that poem, or excuse me, that essay, is that imitation is suicide. Okay? You have an authentic self that is a unique expression of Christ that desires to gift itself to creation. And the moment you try to come into alignment with the opinions of people, you kill yourself. Get it? So oftentimes, abuse and neglect manifests itself in people-pleasing. And oftentimes, people-pleasing becomes a very toxic trait that makes you forget who you are, and it robs creation of who you were created to be. Right? Okay. So, hmm. Here's another one of those things that I don't want to say at the end, because I want you to like me by the end. Trauma trophies will only cost you. Okay? Trauma trophies will only cost you. I would never belittle, I would never reduce what you've been through. But if you use what you've been through to get other people to expect less of you, listen, if you use what you've been through to get other people to expect less of you, you will inevitably and subconsciously surround yourself with mediocre people. Mediocre people will pull half your destiny out of you and give you an excuse as to why you're not pressing into the rest of it, okay? And they will always allow you to attribute your mediocrity to your trauma. And you always, now there's a, there's a biblical term for this that I love, and it's actually one of the only components of spiritual warfare that Paul recognizes. It's called a stronghold, Okay? The definition of the Greek word that we use in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 of stronghold is any reasoning that justifies your dysfunction. Okay, I'm like this because. I can't do this because. My marriage is failing because. I can't be in right relationship with my local church because. I, I can't um, go in here without having an anxiety attack because, right? It's a trauma trophy. It's the thing you shine, present to people as an excuse as to why you're not who he created you to be. Now, not reducing what you've been through. All I'm trying to do is encourage you to realize that, you're, that it's costing you. There's way more in store for you than there is when you're, when you're viewing your entire life in light of your trauma trophy. Okay? Creation needs all of you. Not the version of you that you have allowed to sneak out under what you've been through. Good? Okay, now, um, we talk covenant theology a lot in here. I'm going to give you 30 seconds worth. The Mosaic Covenant vanished away. Amen. Yeah, it's, yep, it's good. So now where does that put judgment? Okay, if, if the, the priesthood 
the temple, the sacrifice, and the law, all done away with between 30 and 70 AD, gone, then judgment will never be God evaluating your performance up against a list of 619 Jewish ordinances, right? And even if you were alive at that time, you're not a Jew anyway, right? So it wasn't your covenant. But there's this language that God uses when he's assessing humanity in any way. There's only one now stipulation that he regularly revisits, and it's this. Have the people that have received mercy extended it? Right? Have the people that have received mercy extended it? He told parables about a, uh, I forget what they called him, a jail, a jail guard, uh, whatever. And he went to the, the king, it's been a minute since I read it, and he owed him money. And the king said, I forgive your debt. And then he went to the guy that owed his mo- him money, and he held him in accusation for it. And he was judged because he held that man in accusation. He threw him in jail so that the king, in turn, brought him to account. Right? There's mechanics to this. You want to go deep? Okay. There's mechanics to this. In the third heaven, the 100-fold church, you'll, you'll pick up these pieces as I go through this. In the spiritual realm, might be language that we can all settle on, there's only one tree. There's only one church. There's only one baptism. There's only one God. There's only one body, right? That's the spirit. And it says we should endeavor to keep the unity in the spirit, right? So it already exists. When I look at you in the spirit, I see him. When you look at me in the spirit, you see him. There is no other judgment available in that realm. And the realm that you operate in is the realm that you're governed by. The third heaven is only God himself and everything that exists in him. It is the unseen, uncreated realm. There's only one tree in that realm. It's the tree of life. There is nothing by which to judge you. There is no fault. There is no law. Right? So if if I exist, if I have chosen to be governed by that realm, that means that I'm inspired by that realm to establish your identity apart from your works. That means I can't use what you've done against me to establish who you are to me. Good? Now, you step into the 60-fold, the soulless realm. That's where your mind, your will, and your emotions are. And because those are present in that place, you get to determine what governs them. They can be governed by the reality that we just established, or they can govern themselves based on experiences and senses, right? This is where Adam got in trouble. The consequence of eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was his eyes were opened. That was the problem. They heard God coming, and they actually separated themselves from him because they saw that they were naked. God said, who told you that you were naked? He didn't anticipate that they would have seen their own nakedness because he made them to be governed by his word and not what they saw. The only truth that they should have been privy to is that they were very good. Right? So now they step into this reality where they're in a sense-based realm that determines what they think and feel. So now if I'm no longer governed by the Spirit, I'm I'm governed by what I think and feel, and now you are the one determining what I think and feel, then I've stepped into being governed by a realm that's no longer the Spirit. And if that's the court we're functioning in, by all means, choose it. Here's the bad thing about it. If it governs one, it governs all. So if you decide that you want justice, 
then justice will be demanded of you. Get it? If you live by the sword, you die by the sword, right? This, I want you to understand, like, God's very active, very concerned with, with the day-to-day life of humanity. But there are things that he puts in place that he doesn't have to control, right? They're natural consequences. He, he establishes realm that, realms that govern themselves. So he didn't say, judge not or I'll judge you. He said, judge not lest you be judged, right? He said, if you want to operate in that realm, you have to submit to that realm, And if you submit to that realm and you identify everybody else by what they've done, you're going to end up inevitably identifying yourself by what you've done. Yep, sin towards you produces sin in you, and then your destiny is compromised, and then creation is robbed of your authentic self. Get it? So if you want to function in that realm, you have to be governed by that realm. It's like when you get a speeding ticket, like the the new Philly cop gives you a speeding ticket, you're like, he was hidden, he had his lights off, I'm taking this, this to the county, right? You take it to the county, and the county's like, you know what, we don't have time for you. Take it to the Supreme Court, the state court. And then you present your evidence. He had his lights off. He was hidden behind a sign. I think he was drinking a little bit, and that, that, <laughs> that, that gun needed calibrated. So the state says now that you're innocent. That means the county and the local authorities have to submit to the court that you're being governed by. right? So when you stay in the right realm, every other court submits to you. So you don't have to be only as good as it's going. You can determine how it's going by living governed under the word. Right? It's, it's good stuff. Right? So there's a, there's a piece that, that I don't think that I've taught here before um, that has to do... Yep, we'll go here. Uh, go to... I'm going to need you in Matthew and I'm going to need you in Deuteronomy. Man, let me say a few things before I get there. I got ahead of myself. Um, I want you to understand God's priorities, okay? And this is going to sound shocking, but I'll give you scriptural and substantial evidence for everything. God desires relationship. Excuse me. God prioritizes human relationship over divine worship. Do you think it's true? Or do you think I'm making it up? If you come to the altar to give your gift and remember that your brother has something against you, leave. Right? You come to worship, God says, you're not in unity with your brother, leave. Go make it right with him, then come offer your gift. Right? This is a mandate. 1 Corinthians 13, he, he desires unity in relationships, love over spiritual gifting. You can prophesy and not love and you're worthless, you're annoying. Like those are the words that he says. Yep. You good so far? He desires right relationship between humans more than he desires to answer your prayer. I know this is strange, but there's literally like nothing, nothing that you can find in the New Testament that would give you a reason for God not answering, answering your prayers other than unforgiveness. When it talks about the elders in James 5 praying for the sick, it commands the guy that's being prayed for to forgive people. In, in Luke, excuse me, Mark 11, I'm going to read this to you. You don't have to turn here because it's not the, the, the meat of what we're going to talk about today. But um, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believe that those things that he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say, whatever you ask, when you believe, pray that you receive them and you will have them. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him. Right? These components are interwoven into these moments of manifestation. He desires unity in the body more than worship. He desires unity in the body more than gifts. He desires unity in the body more than answered prayers. He exalts human relationship over divine relationship. Don't worship me until you're right with them. You can't love God and dislike people. It's demonic. Good? Okay. All right. Go to... Man, I've got like three passages that we're going to bounce in between. Go to Matthew 18. 
I'll take you there, and then I'll, I'll navigate the rest. You guys good so far? You still harboring unforgiveness? Rebellious little vixens? Deuteronomy. Okay. I told you to go to Matthew 18, right? Okay, let me, let me establish a foundation for this from Luke 17, then we're going to spend some time in Matthew 18. Then he said to his disciples, it's impossible that no offenses should come. Okay, this is the creator of the universe guaranteeing that you're going to be offended. You, you can put a lot of weight in that, right? So if you're part of the local body, it is guaranteed that you will get ticked off. Okay? You will get ticked off by your pastor. That's me. You'll get ticked off by your brothers and sisters. You'll get ticked off by leadership. You will get ticked off by somebody guaranteed. It's impossible, right? There's not too many things that God says are impossible, but it is impossible that offenses won't come. You understand how heavy of a Satan that is? It is impossible that offenses won't come. But woe to him through who they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea then you should offend one of these little ones. Take heed yourselves. Okay? We've spelled this out. It's been years, but I want to give you the, the, uh, the, the Jewish understanding of this passage. Okay? It's impossible that offenses won't come. Right? It's guaranteed that somebody's going to offend me. But the person that is in danger here is not the one that offered the offense. The person through whom they come is the one that's in danger. This language, because the English language is kind of limited in the way that we can express uh, Hebrew understanding, doesn't give us real clear insight into what this means. If you have an offender... You have an offended, right? Neither one of these people in this moment are in any trouble. It's guaranteed that he's going to offend somebody, and there is a biblical solution to handling offense. But woe to him through whom they come. Now, this word through is scandalon, scandalon, right? That means woe to him who tells other people about it. Woe to him that refuses to protect the dignity of their offender. Do you get it? If an offender offends me, this real problem has a real solution, and we can move forward in unity. But if that offender offends me, and then I turn and I need a hero to save me, woe to me, it's better if you tie a rock around my neck and throw me in the sea, then I should offend. Now listen to how the Bible regards this person, one of these little ones. Their offense towards you is evidence of the immaturity in them. So if someone offends you, now they become your ministry, not your enemy. Good? Woe to him who scandalizes the person that offended them. There is never... Now, I'm, I'm going to go through the, the biblical conflict resolution so we can understand where this stuff was founded and where it came from. But if somebody offends you, you have a time limit on how long you're free to take care of it. How long is it? Sundown. How many people are you allowed to tell about it? One. Who? person that did it. Yep. You want to see a high dignity and, and, and relationally mature church? Quit telling people other people's scandal. Yep. 
The, the Bible addresses two things. It addresses gossip and slander. Okay, they're two different things biblically. Gossip is when you tell people other people's business that's true. Okay, so you people that just tell it how it is, it doesn't mean you're being Christ-like. could mean that you're a gossip. Right? Slander is when you make up something about somebody to defile their character. Both of them 100% unpermissible in the kingdom. Just because it's true doesn't mean you say it. Right? Okay. So, Matthew 18. Um, go to verse 15. Matthew 18, 15. I lost Deuteronomy already. Got excited. What did I go looking for? There it is. I should have called this sermon an eye for an eye. Because the context that we understand an eye for an eye for is wrong. The person who stole doesn't get their hand cut off in, in Jewish tradition. I'll explain that in a minute. We're not going to get into that yet. Matthew 18, 15 through 20. I'm a little bit slow on my pages here. Give me a second. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone, right? Set some pretty solid ground rules for who's supposed to be part of this conversation. Oftentimes, we've, we've established a culture in, in the local church where you feel like you have to tell a leader when you're offended. That's step three. That's not step one. Your leadership should not know about your offense in, unless you've failed to reconcile. And as a leader, you are freely freely permitted to approach people that you're not in agreement with. There's another passage we're not going to read today, but it says, if your brother uh, offends you, rebuke him. The word rebuke meant reason with him. It wasn't the, the sharp tongue lashing. It was, it was reason with him. Go talk it out, right? So the person that should re be receiving the first conversation regarding your offense is your offender, Okay. If he hears you, you gains your brother. Okay, so there's motive behind the conversation too. The kingdom motive behind a reconciliation conversation is that you win the person that you offended, you not get justice. Right? If you approach your offender to get justice, you're, you're operating in the wrong realm. If you're demanding justice from your offender, then your offender can demand justice from you. The way Chris Blackby puts it, he said, you walk up to the, the clerk of court's desk and you say, I want this person punished for this. They said, so be it, but while you're here... Okay, maybe I don't want justice, right? Maybe I want to go above the call of duty and forgive, right? Okay, so, but if he won't hear you, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Now, you've probably heard really well-intentioned people try to tell you what that means, okay? Um, if they don't hear you, uh, roll in deep and maybe you can offend them into admitting guilt or intimidate them into admitting guilt okay here's the thing the Bible typically interprets the Bible so if you pay attention to this passage that particular part of scripture is italicized do you know what it means if it's italicized it's quoted yep so you don't have to guess what it means you can visit Deuteronomy chapter 19 where Paul, or excuse me, where Matthew's quoting this passage from. As a matter of fact, Jesus is quoting this passage from. So let's go there. This is going to give you some tremendous insight. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. Hmm, that doesn't sound right. 1915. Did I say 19? Okay, good, because I was reading 18. Okay. One witness 
shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. Okay? Here's what that means. The church will never be governed by one negative Nancy. Yep. There are people that can find something wrong with everything. (laughs) And they don't get to call the shots. Yep. Organizations cannot be governed by afflicted people. You can't allow people that are triggered and offended to establish culture because it will be about avoidance and not about advancement. Get it? Deuteronomy establishes a foundation for accusation. And if one person says it, it can't be true yet. So when Jesus is teaching them to settle offenses, he's, he's revisiting this principle in Deuteronomy. You need two or three eyewitnesses to go tell this brother his fault, okay? Because if you love someone and they have something that's interfering with their destiny, you take two or three other people that have experienced the same thing you have, And try to reconcile that person back to the body and out of that identity. Get it? Okay, so it's not an intimidation tactic. It's not so they can watch the conversation and take meeting minutes of how it went. It's so that three people that love them can approach them about their dysfunction. It's almost, almost like an intervention. Right? When Shanda and I have conversations with our leaders... We say, if we see something that will interfere with where we believe that God desires to take you, would you allow us to address it? And if that's not the case, then leadership's not permitted, right? If, if, you're, if you're above accountability, you're, you're below leadership, okay? So this passage that, that's italicized Jesus is referencing the, the, the Deuteronomy. Now, let me read the rest of it to you so we can get the context, why it's like this, okay? Um, if a false witness rises against a man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who serve in those days. And the judge judges may, shall make careful inquiry, and indeed, if the witness is a false witness, he who testifies falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. You shall put away the evil from among you. Okay, who's the evil? (laughs) The accuser, right? I'm going to read you one more passage so I I can land this plane. And those who remain shall hear in fear, and hereafter they shall not again commit such evil among you. Your eye shall not be, excuse me, your eye shall not pity. Life shall be for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, and foot for foot. Okay, this gets really dangerous. Okay, this passage isn't about you receiving the punishment that was kind of in line with your iniquity. This means if you accuse somebody and said, this is the punishment that I desire for them to have, and they are found innocent, then guess what happens to you? If you wanted a foot, you have to give up a foot. If you wanted a hand, you have to give up a hand. If you wanted them out of leadership, then you're out of leadership. Get this? That's what an eye for an eye means. That means that you have to endure the punishment that you thought right for the person that offended you. Now, why is Paul, excuse me, why is Jesus referencing this passage in this covenant? Why does Jesus say, judge not lest you be judged? Because this is the mechanism of accusation. There are no human beings that don't possess the value of the blood of Jesus. They have been rendered free from sin and the effects of sin. If you accuse them and establish a punishment for them, your judgment becomes your judgment. (laughs) 
you usually end up living in the hell that you wish they were in. Am I right or am I wrong? Like this, again, this isn't God saying you judge, so here you go. This is the natural mechanics of the heavenly realms. If you judge, you'll be judged. If you bring accusation, listen, Peter said it this way, don't call common anything that I've called clean. If Jesus has established somebody's righteousness through the sufficiency of his own sacrifice, then the accusation that you make against them becomes an accusation against you. Is it good? I think it's pretty fiery. So now you know the origin of eye for an eye. It's not you took my eye, now I want yours. It's you wanted mine. And I'm innocent, so it's going to cost you. Get it? Okay. I didn't get to the end of Matthew 18, did I? I didn't. Where is that? Okay, and if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church, but if he refuses to hear the church, let him be like a heathen and a tax collector to you. Okay, so the church, that word church is ekklesia, which is another one of those Greek words that takes on its context. It means the governing assembly. So like in in New Philadelphia, the courthouse is an ekklesia. In in New Philadelphia, the church is an ekklesia. But there's an ekklesia of the ekklesia. There's a governing assembly of the local church. That's the the, the fivefold ministry and, and bishops. Okay, so what it's saying is if he didn't hear you and he didn't hear two or three witnesses, then the leadership can get involved. And if he still doesn't hear you, okay, this is Jesus speaking, then the man shall be like a sinner and a tax collector to you. Okay, which is the passage that most denominations use to kick people out for offending them? Right? Observational assessment would beg the question, How did Jesus treat sinners and tax collectors? Priority number one. Your offender becomes your ministry, not your enemy. Get it? Are we good? Are you sure? Because a lot of people, you don't know what I've been through. You don't know who did it to me. Like, I get that. But do you want justice or do you want change? Imagine if Stephen wanted justice. Stephen begged for the forgiveness of the one that was calling, the one that was permitting the Pharisees to stone him to death. He begged for his, his acquittal rather than his justice. And then that man became the most significant author of New Testament scripture. Right? Stephen wanted change. Justice might make you feel better, but it'll cost you. Foot for a foot, eye for an eye, life for a life. Okay, almost done. Go to Luke 17 real quick. We'll finish that up. I'm just going to put that in context for you, then that'll be it. Chapter 17, verse 1 says, Then he said to his disciples, It's impossible that no offenses would come, but woe to him through whom they come. And we gave that example a moment ago. It would be better for him to have a millstone that were hung around his neck and thrown into the sea than he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times he repents to you, saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And the apostle said to the Lord, Increase our faith. Isn't that a wild response? to, to the, the command to forgive. They were told to raise the dead, heal the sick, cast out demons. They were fine with that. They said, let's go. The moment that they were instructed to forgive their offenders, they needed their faith increased. Right? Jesus' response to the, the, the request for an increase of faith is what makes this passage shocking and puts forgiveness in its correct context. Ready? So the Lord said, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and planted into the sea and it would obey you. He's saying it doesn't take faith. 
Faith is not the mechanism that produces forgiveness. Get that through your head. Faith is not the mechanism that produces forgiveness. Obedience is. Okay, ready? Which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, would say to him when he's come in from the field, come, come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper, gird yourself and serve me until I've eaten and drank, and afterwards you can eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise, you, when you have done all these things which you are commanded to say, excuse me, commanded, say we are unprofitable servants and we have done what was our duty to do. Okay? That's one of the only times that Jesus does not attribute the manifestation to faith. You want healing? Faith. Deliverance? Faith. Right? Raise the dead? Faith. Forgiveness? Forget about it. Do it. I'm not even going to help you. Right? That's what he says. I'm not even going to help you. If you had a servant... Would you say thank you because he made you dinner? No, he did his job. I've told this story before, but like the fourth or fifth time I was on a plane, people clapped when the the pilot landed. That was the scariest thing I've ever been a part of, right? I was on five planes, they clapped like there was an alternative. Like what else was the pilot going to do? Good job, we're not dead, right? Jesus is saying that the recipients of forgiveness are commanded obliged, required to extend it, and they don't even get a thank you. Yep, it's not about faith. It's about duty. It's about obedience. It's about the commitment and requirement to bring heaven to earth through the reconciliation of humanity to the Father. It says that you have the ministry of reconciliation, not imputing their trespasses to them. Yep, you're a priest. Miss, Miss Becca, can I borrow you for a moment? Would you come uh, play keys for me? And I'd like to invite you all to stand. Could I have our ministry team join us up front? Here's the thing. Shanda and I aren't um, unaware of how difficult it is to forgive an offender, right? I wanted to put this in clear context for you so that you understand that your unforgiveness is keeping you from your destiny, not the person that you've accused, not the person that has offended you. Unforgiveness stifles you, not them. It's wildly important that we see the kingdom context for unforgiveness, and this is what I want to invite you to do. I'm done. I've taught. I've released revelation. And now what I want to offer is our, our ministry team is trained in, in, in soul ministry, in deliverance, in healing, and they will agree with you. You don't have to come up and say, this is what so-and-so did to me, and this is like, honestly, I probably wouldn't do that. But if you have bitterness and unforgiveness in your heart, you can get rid of it. And if it's been something that you've tried to get rid of over and over and over and over again, and you've been unsuccessful, I would invite you to partner with one of these folks. They, they can pray with you. They can sense and discern things that might be enhancing those things that are staying. But I'm telling you that today's a day of freedom. And you'll be delivered from the dysfunction that somebody put in you without your permission. Amen? All right, so if any of you would just like partnership and agreement, there's ladies over here, there's a group of tremendous men over here. I invite you, they're tremendous ladies too, don't be offended. Um, I invite you forward. Just come. Don't, don't be too pride, prideful to do it. Just, just come and, um, and unload that stuff so you can step into what's next. Amen? Amen.